I'm delighted to be welcoming Clark here. He's been a regular at our conferences for a few years now. Uh, he started out at English Libri, and uh, for the last uh, quite a few years, how many is it now? Twelve years. Uh, he and Julia have been uh, in the Canadian branch of Libri, uh, and he is heading it up at this point. And uh, they had a recent relocation from Bowen Island to Vancouver Island, and they're doing very, very well. And we're very encouraged by uh, the Canadian branch of Labri and the growth that the Lord has brought to them and the new team that they have there. Uh, but it's a delight to have Clark here, and I gave him an easy topic uh, <coughs> just to, to break him in on the plenary platform. Uh, but uh, as usual, there'll be lots of time for Q&A afterwards, and so we look forward to a good discussion. But let's welcome uh, Clark. It's really good to be here. I, uh, I love coming to the Rochester Conference, and having come over the years, I've got to know quite a few of you, some of your stories, and I'm glad to have met some of you for the first time this this conference. So I'm really glad to be here, and I'm glad to be talking about this topic. It's something that hits close to home for many people. Many people have already approached me to, to ask me what I was going to say about it, <laughs> to see if they wanted to come. <laughs> but there isn't any other lecture that you can go to, so, <laughs> so here we are. Now, the topic is, Thy Kingdom Come, is social justice the end goal of Christianity. Now, the reason I'm asking this question is because there's been so many people that have been passing through Labrie, uh, young evangelical Christians who have given up on biblical Christianity. And some have left the church, and some have even left uh, the faith. Now, this doesn't mean that they have gone to become immoral. In fact, it's the opposite. They see the church as the place that is immoral. Uh, long gone are the days of the 80s when uh, many evangelicals in America define themselves as the moral majority. In fact, that's almost a stench in young evangelicals' noses today. <clears throat> it began with a pursuit that they, they had a pursuit for justice. They wanted to see justice be done. They wanted to see the kingdom of God come, but over time it corroded their belief. It corroded their confidence in God and in the Bible. So how did we get here? So I have these four questions. Some people like roadmaps. My wife does. I like to figure it out as I go. <laughs> but these are for the people who like roadmaps. How did we get here? That's my first point. I'm going to be talking about the history, particularly of the 2000s. And then, what is at work here? I'll be looking at something called critical theory. Uh, what uh, Oz referred to as cultural Marxism um, in the beginning. And he highlighted in some points. Then my third point is, how does it relate to biblical Christianity? How does this critical theory and its adoption into theology, how does that work and how might biblical Christianity, how might it have a response? How might Christians have a response? And is there a way forward is my last point. And that's just a, a very brief point just to show you that there have been 
uh, pursuits of social justice and people holding to the biblical Christian witness together. And so we'll look at those together. So let's start with a little bit. It's not quite a proper history lesson. Uh, This is a complex history. I don't even pretend to say that I know it all. But uh, these are just going to be some highlights. Now, where I want to begin is that there's this odd uh, group of people born between 1950 and 1954. There's a high percentage that vote only Democrat. And see, political sciences, uh, Gitza and Gelman, let's see if I got that right. Yes, I got that right. I probably mispronounced it. But anyway, Gitza and Gelman were political scientists that were studying why was, the, why was this their pocket. And what they discovered is that many people's political um, ideals or how they vote tends to be shaped at the age of 18. Uh, it can happen between 14 years old and 24 years old, but the, high, the highest is uh, 18 years old. And so they were looking at 1968, and that was a huge time of uh, political tumultuity, tumultuous 60s, okay? <clears throat> you had um, JFK uh, was, uh, had been shot around this period of time, Robert Kennedy, uh, some of the stuff that Oz mentioned, uh, some of these protests and these riots, uh, cities burning, uh, the Vietnam War. And this led a lot of people to start becoming disillusioned with the American dream. So they started turning to uh, their peace flags and to their pot. The dream has now come to fruition in America for them. But uh, But they wanted to see justice in all areas of their life. And so uh, this is Mark Leela, uh, a sociologist, uh, a liberal, and he wrote, Oppression was polymorphous, and so resistance had to be too. That was why marching in a demonstration against the Vietnam War in the morning, working at a food co-op in the afternoon, attending a feminist workshop in the evening, and then camping out on the land to get my soul free was all completely coherent. And so there was a longing for justice. But at the same time, there was an influence, a beginning influence in the universities of uh, a form of Marxism, cultural Marxism, that shaped their ideas of, uh, that started making them suspicious of, uh, particularly of what was considered the right. Uh, You know, Nixon and the military and capitalism. And so there started being, they wanted to live in communes and they wanted to live free from uh, from all this uh, tyranny of capitalism and the military complex, they wanted to live free lives, and they wanted to live and see justice in all areas of their life. <clears throat> we even had uh, uh, Herbert Marcuse had the, uh, the audacious idea that maybe we should even silence the speech of those who uh, disagree with the true ways of justice. Uh, that was kind of a, a pretty far left-wing idea, that, but we will see that come to fruition as we have in the universities, but I'll come to that in a minute. But what I want to do is start with the 2000s. <clears throat> so the young evangelicals these days have um, been shaped by the 2000s, and the 2000s have been quite the doozy. 
Now, I saw this divide happen <clears throat> between those who uh, really had an admiration for the state or for the country and then those who were suspicious of the actions of the state. And I saw this in seminary. Uh, I went to seminary in Canada at a school called Regent College. And when 9-11 happened, I woke up and saw that it happened and went to, to Regent wondering what we were going to do. And we all gathered together as Christians and prayed together. And it was a wonderful moment of solidarity. But that was the last moment of solidarity I felt at Regent. I started feeling a divide, and I could just feel it cut in between. And the first beginning was between Canadians and Americans, uh, but uh, about how to respond to this. But the idea was that America was seen as an oppressor, not as a victim, and that there was only simply that 9-11 was a retaliation out of one who was oppressed. And so there was a lot of... Um, uh, this is where I saw the beginning of it, but... You know, it, uh, much happened after this. You have the economic crash of 2008. Obama was elected as the first black president of the U.S. You had Tyler Clementi, who was a, a young man who um, uh, identified as trans, and he was beat up, and, uh, and that brought attention to LGBT bullying uh, or uh, bullying against the LGBTQ community. Then you had uh, Trayvon Martin, who was shot, a young black man who was shot. And then you saw the, the white police officer exonerated from the charges and Black Lives Matter was founded. You had Caitlyn Jenner, uh, a very public figure, a former Olympian, uh, come out and identify as trans, and so brought uh, really um, trans to the forefront as of acceptability. And then you had the legislation or the passing of same-sex marriage. Then you had Donald Trump's election. Then you had the Me Too movement, and partly response to Donald Trump's election and to other issues. Whoops. I just erased the Me Too movement. Okay. <laughs> then you had the, the uh, opposite reaction of the Charlottesville uh, protests where there was uh, uh, white supremacy um, uh, mowing down someone with a car. And so you saw the rise of a radical right. And then you had, of course, mass shootings throughout all the 2000s. Um, but this was Parkland High School. And... Uh, People from high school started protesting um, against, uh, um, or at least for strict gun laws. And then, of course, you have the whole debate around immigration and the wall. And then we have this past year the uh, person of the year, Greta Thunberg, from Sweden, who started protesting uh, the ecological crisis or um, uh, protesting the UN to act and function. So that is a blitzkrieg through the 2000s. I was amazed. I'm not even listing half the things. But it's almost exhausting. And, and if we have that fatigue, and so many people have come to Labrie with just fatigue, a polarization, but also of all that's been happening. And so this has been forming and shaping the young minds of uh, young people throughout the U.S. and throughout the world. 
but also young evangelicals. And so the young felt this sense of injustice. And like the 60s, they wanted to help. They had a a feeling that they needed to help. And at the same time, at the universities, critical theory, which I'll explain in a minute, uh, this cultural Marxism started, had already kind of uh, filtered its way into the universities uh, much more thoroughly. And it became an interpretive grid with the cultural issues that they were seeing. Uh, The primary, uh, the only thing I need you to know right now about critical theory is that there's oppressors and that those are the oppressed. That the powerful are advantaged, the powerless are disadvantaged. I meant, uh, you know, when Trayvon Martin was shot and then the white police officer was exonerated, there was a deep sense of injustice, that there was uh, power plays and games of privilege. And so a lot of young people in America started seeing that critical theory was actually quite helpful for them to interpret how things were going. Young Christians also wondered about how their faith was to be a part of it. There was one student that came to uh, Labrie, and she was very angry. She lived in St. Louis that why did her church not show up to protest the, the killing of uh, Michael Brown? And, and why wasn't there outrage in the church? Why was it just sticking to its traditional moors without sensing a, 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 having a sense of social justice, a social concern for those who are oppressed? And so they did not become disillusioned with the American dream. Young evangelicals started becoming disillusioned with Christianity and the church. You might say some people speak of it as almost of a conversion moment when they uh, or when they are woke, when they see that there's patterns of oppression all around them and that the church seems to play a part of that. They look at their churches. They see traditionalism that seems to sit on their hands when injustices surround them in society. But also they see the mega churches and they just see consumerism, materialism and people seeking personal fulfillment but not seeking justice in society. And so it brought a lot of suspicion and skepticism around Christianity. But there did seem to be some light of hope because there was a heritage um, that was planted in Christian theology. Uh, It started in the 60s um, where you had uh, a movement called liberation theology. It was the introduction of uh, really Marxism to a theological approach toward social situations. Now, Guterres, it was mostly a Roman Catholic uh, uh, movement, but it also had someone like Jose Miguez Benino, a Protestant, who um, uh, who also advocated for this new interpretive lens to know how to deal with these social circumstances, particularly in Latin and South America. And that they felt that they didn't need the help of the West. In fact, the West had compromised itself with capitalism. And that they were really wanting to call for an overthrow of the current oppression and also a redistribution of wealth. But what it has given some young evangelicals today, I saw this even at Regent, uh, that people were picking up the books and seeing that actually there's a, a very helpful lens in which to look at the Bible. That it starts highlighting things that they hadn't heard. In the, in the churches. They heard of forgiveness of sins. 
They heard of uh, making sure that you tithe, making sure that you're sexually pure, but they didn't hear so many other things that seemed to be so obvious. And so liberation theology gave uh, them this lens, or critical theory, you might say, gave them a lens to restart thinking, how can I read my Bible differently, especially to address all these issues that I'm seeing? And so the, one of the, the interpretive keys for, uh, um, for the lens on how to read Scripture this way is usually the Exodus. Exodus is a very primary theme because it is a liberation of people from a slavery, from a bondage. But you see it all over the pages of Scripture. You have the welcoming of the foreigner into Israel. God says, this is the land I have given you. This isn't your land. This is the land I have given you. Welcome the foreigner in. Uh, you had a relief of debts. Massive when every seven years people would have to return to the land and forgive the debts. And so if you're six years in and six months, six years and six months in, and you're not sure if you want to lend the money because you might not get it back, the law is still calling you to lend, even though you know that the relief of debts is around the corner. It's a pretty radical call for these um, God's people. They see uh, land ethics, especially Sabbath laws, on how they are to treat the land and the environment. Uh, there's been some people who have been disillusioned with Christianity, and I, uh, especially around the environment, and I love to turn them to Leviticus. Leviticus has wonderful laws around how to use the land. And if the land is misused, God will vomit them out of that land. And it's brought a lot of comfort to some people. Uh, you also have the prophets speaking against the idolatry. Uh, idolatry is the key theme throughout the prophets, but the, the number one consequence of idolatry is the oppression of the poor. That there's unjust scales. And then, of course, Jesus comes and announces the kingdom of God, and he does so by not being, it's, it doesn't seem to be morally uh, ascetic or anxious about it, but befriending sinners. And then being uh, most angry at the religious authorities. And then uh, James says, true religion is looking after widows and orphans. And so you have lots of examples and the Bible starts becoming very fresh and very full when you start reading it through a different lens. Through the lens of those who are marginalized. This one conservative evangelical seminary, seminarian wrote, The Bible is written from the lens of the marginalized. If you come from a group or community that is historically not marginalized, you need these voices and perspectives, or else your understanding of the word, the gospel, and the Christian life will be thin and weak. Now, there, in many ways, I agree with this, because uh, when I started reading the Bible and started reading uh, different ways of, uh, of reading it. I'm not talking about just reading different parts of the Bible even. And I started realizing that the Bible has a lot to say about justice issues. And I realized I, my reading had been very anemic. I hadn't been reading all of it. And so I started trying to reconcile it all. And so I do believe that we can have an advantage um, or it, it helps us if we read the Bible, not just from our own perspective, but from the community of witnesses around us, from the persecuted church and from those who are oppressed. Start reading the scriptures in that way and you start, you start seeing uh, how God speaks to all people in all times and places. But then there was a, there's a subtle but important shift that happened. That critical theory wasn't just a helpful lens in which to bring some things out. 
It became the interpretive key. It became the foundation. Now, critical theory is a secular ideology. And so the way to understand divine revelation uh, uh, was the, the way to do it is through a secular ideological lens. And so you have Union Seminary on their statement of scripture says, while divinely inspired, we deny the Bible is inerrant or infallible. It was written by men over centuries and thus reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice. We affirm that biblical scholarship and critical theory help us discern which messages are God's. Now, it says it's written by men and thus. That it was written by men already is, in a, uh, is a, a possible or potential or real oppression of other voices. And so critical theory is necessary to figure this out. And so what you had, um, you had uh, the rise out of liberation theology. You started seeing the rise of feminist um, theology, black theology, gay theology, as a lens of uh, this idea of how to read scripture from womanness, how to read scripture from blackness, and how to read scripture from gayness, that kind of idea. And so it became a lens on how to read and edit scripture. Mark Sayers, uh, he is on a podcast called This Cultural Moment. I highly recommend it. It's very interesting, particularly Mark Sayers. Uh, also, it's John Mark Comer from uh, Bridgeport in Portland. I think he's the main guy, but Mark Sayers is called in. Whenever you see Mark Sayers called in on the podcast, you can listen. It's really good. But he said what happened is that these people, uh, that young evangelicals who wanted to see justice got on the train. But the train started going to stations that they were not expecting. And so sometimes we can be caught unawares. You get on this train and you're wanting justice. But what ends up happening is that this, uh, this lens ends up becoming the key to understanding revelation. That almost becomes revelation itself. And so a lot of people uh, end up giving up faith. There was one regent professor. He, uh, he came. I invited him to lecture. And he spoke. Uh, I, I, edit, I deleted the recording. <laughs> so there's no evidence. But, uh, <laughs> but he did speak. And, uh, and he spoke about social justice. And, and I had some disagreements w- about it later on. And he said that he thought that what I was doing at Labrie was not true gospel work. And I asked him why that was. And he said, because you're not down with the poor. Now, this man gives his life, his home. He's fully invested in this. And he stands with the homeless. He fights for First Nations rights and so on. And so he's an incredibly compassionate and passionate man, also very intelligent. But he failed to see that Labrie was a place where there was the gospel for the poor in spirit, that the gospel was not just for the poor, but also the poor in spirit, that is for all. He ended up leaving the seminary, and he then ended up leaving the church. I don't know where his faith is now, but I know he's deeply struggling to see how Christianity meets all needs. And many uh, Christians have followed, especially when 
80% of white evangelicals voting for Trump was the last straw for many young evangelicals fed on uh, this um, interpretive key. So James K. Smith speaks on this. He went to a Jesuit uh, university, and it was at the time that they were rolling out their mission statement, and he's reflecting on that. Long on talk of justice, diversity, and service, the word God nowhere appears in the document. Jesus never makes an appearance in the mission of this Jesuit university. In strange, often unintended ways, the pursuit of justice, shalom, and a holistic gospel can have its own secularizing effect. What begins as a gospel-motivated concern for justice can turn into a naturalized fixation on justice in which God never appears. So what's at work here? What's happening behind, behind the, uh, the veil? Or what is the interpretive key? What is this secular ideology? And so I want to look at critical theory. I'm no expert on critical theory. So if you want to have... <laughs> You'll have to read a book, I think. <laughs> but I'm sure there's other people here who are much more knowledgeable than I am. I'm just trying to give a brief sketch, a brief picture, so that you can understand what's at work here. If I make any mistakes, please correct me. And so I'm going to look at the hierarchy of the strong, critical consciousness, and liberation from oppressive structures. That's the direction I'm going in this section. Now, for critical theory, it begins not with creation, but the fall. It begins with oppression. Oppression as the reality. Quoting uh, a person who is of some renown, notorious perhaps, Jordan Peterson, says, Hierarchies exist because they gain from oppressing those who are admitted. It is this ill-gotten gain that allows them to flourish. So the idea is that hierarchies are established not because of good leadership, but because one wants to have power and to use that power to take advantage of those who are oppressed. That's how hierarchies are created and maintained. They're maintained through something called hegemonic power. And at the very center of this, that line between the oppressed and oppressor, the line that holds all people together is power, raw power. And who's got the power? And so you see that you see aspects of hegemonic power. Uh, I want to not deny that it exists, at least um, maybe um, at least an idea that this sense that there are laws and structures in society that disadvantage many people intentionally. You can think of the Jim Crow laws in the 60s. You can think of a young woman who wants to go to the courts and uh, say that she was sexually assaulted. It wasn't too long ago that she would probably be disbelieved. You also had, um, you see corporations with enough money, they can get off being very greedy and exploitative. And so you say, wow, there's a lot of, there's a lot of something true here. That people who get to be powerful sometimes try to find ways of maintaining their power. It's like absolute power absolutely corrupts, something like that. And so you have this, you have this division of 
humanity and the world, between oppressor and oppressed, and no one falls outside this category. But what you need is you need to know where you fit into this paradigm, and that's what's called critical consciousness. And so um, this is true for the oppressor, and it's true for the oppressed. Uh, maybe the oppressed person doesn't even know that they are oppressed. So you think of a young African-American boy who wants to succeed in the world. And he's taught that if he studies hard enough, tries hard enough, then all the world is at his hands or at his feet or wherever. Uh, I don't know that saying very well, obviously. But you have a sense of faced by endemic poverty that has been inherited over generations that he's born into. He's sent to certain schools because of where he lives. There is a higher amount of police suspicion because of the color of his skin. And there's an easy, easier criminalization because of the color of his skin. Um, you know, if a, if a young black man is caught with marijuana, his, his punishment was always much more severe than if a white boy was caught with marijuana. There was a book called The New Jim Crow um, and talking about mass incarceration. And so what you have to do is saying, okay, well, not, if you might be oppressed and not even know that you're oppressed. And this young boy is thinking, I can make it to the top. But he doesn't know how many, how many structural evils there are, how many things are set against him, that the deck is stacked. That's called internal oppression. And so he needs to understand and become conscious, critically conscious or woke to what is real. And so if your categories are white, male, straight, cisgendered, fertile, and rich, then you are a part of oppressor class. And it's not it's your identity. You're not just an, uh, an individual. It's not if you're a good or bad person. If you've, if you've personally oppressed anyone, it's because that your identity is tied to the group. You're tied to whiteness. You're tied to maleness. You're di- di- tied to straightness and so on. Now, if you are gay, transgendered, or non-binary, female, a person of color, Poor or infertile, you are a part of an oppressed class. And so you start finding out where, where your group falls and how you fit not only in this paradigm but in society. But then it gets more complicated. It's complicated by an idea called intersectionality. Intersectionality... Um, is a way of trying to evaluate the complications of these structural injustices, that there are more unseen injustices than just simple group identity, that, that there's particularities to us that can be a combination of things. So there was a, a, an African-American woman who was trying to get a job at GM, and she wasn't given a job, and so she filed a suit against it saying that it was discrimination. Well, GM rolled out and said, actually, we hire, we, hire, um, uh, we hire people of color and we hire women. But they showed, but it showed that there wasn't any black women. 
there were black men being hired for certain fields and white women hired for certain fields. And so the black woman felt that she was um, in a different class, that she was more oppressed. And so the more categories below is, is how much more oppressed you are. So if you're a straight, white, male, then you have much more power. Uh, and if you are a black male, you have some power, some not power. If you're a black woman, it's lower. If you're a gay black woman, it's even lower. And so it's a scale of trying to figure out where you fit in society on this scale and how you might respond. So what's the solution? If this is the, uh, if this is the problem, if this is reality, then how might we bring justice And so the solution that critical theory puts forward is liberation from oppressive structures. But how do they do it? It's complicated. For the oppressed, uh, the oppressed basically want a seat at at the table. They want to have a place where they can make decisions for society. But I've already described that society has already been set and established by hegemonic power. It's being uh, it's through laws and structures that have already privileged the oppressor class. And so in order to be uh, put at the table, then you need to uh, you need to realign it all. And so uh, this quote from Sensoy and D'Angelo. Dominant groups set the norms by which the minoritized group is judged. And so it's basically the dominant class, the oppressor class, who gets to set the agenda. Well, this won't do if you're looking for liberation because you're trying to play a game where you did not set the rules or, where, or the rules that are stacked against you. So what do you do? We return to Herbert Marcuse. He wrote uh, an article called Repressive Tolerance. You can find it online. He wrote it in 1965. And he said that what we need to do is <clears throat> we need to have a new language, a new basis for knowledge. Just like liberation theology did not look to Rome or to the West in order to try to understand what it needs to do, then you need what you need is not the quote-unquote facts of the dominant class, but you need the oppressed's experience. The experience of the oppressed is a way to recalibrate what um, is necessary to, uh, to change the structures. And so Herbert Marcuse suggests that we need to restrict speech to the oppressor class and tolerate and liberate the voice of the oppressed class. And so you see this on campuses today, even though he wrote it in 1965. He says, uh, quoting two quotes here, the restoration of freedom of thought may necessitate new and rigid restrictions on teachings and practices in the educational institutions, which by their very methods and concepts serve to enclose the mind within the established universe of discourse and behavior. He's saying that in order to have freedom of thought, particularly for the oppressed class, we need to restrict the dominant culture, the established universe of discourse. And so we need new language. 
And so he says it should be evident by now that the exercise of civil rights by those who don't have them presupposes the withdrawal of civil rights from those who prevent their exercise. So he's saying that we need to we need to silence the oppressor and so that the experience of the oppressed is given a seat at the table, not playing by your rules, but playing by our rules in our language. So how is this seen today? Mark Leela writes about, um, about the kind of discourse we hear today and how this has come to work, and we hear some of uh, Jim's reflections on effective uh, identity. But this is what Leela says. The more obsessed with personal identity campus liberals become, the less willing they become to engage in reasoned political debate. Now, I would say that happens on the right nowadays, too. Speaking as an ex is not an anodyne phrase. It tells the listener that I am speaking from a morally privileged position on this matter. One never says, speaking as a gay Asian, I feel incompetent to judge this matter. It sets up a wall against questions, which by definition come from a non-ex perspective. He's saying that you're not going to question someone's experience otherwise unless you're attacking them. It could be a microaggression. And it turns the encounter into a power relation. The winner of the argument will be whoever has invoked the morally superior identity and expressed the most outrage at being questioned. So classroom conversations that once might have begun, I think, A, and here's my argument, now take the form, speaking as an X, I'm offended that you claim B. This makes perfect sense if you believe that identity determines everything. It means that there is no impartial space for dialogue. Which is to say there, there is, there's no middle ground from which to discuss. If we wanted to call objectivity or rationality, well, that is a, um, a white man's myth. It's a Eurocentric myth. And so what we need to do is change the discourse. But when you change the discourse, it's who has power over language and speech? And so you can see that this creates a moral asymmetry. It is not equal. One may call out on Twitter. Uh, they can defame or be derogatory toward old white men. But imagine the same, the same tweet having the same defamatory instances but toward Asian women. They would be called out and it would be very, uh, uh, there would be protests. But there's silence when there's a de- defamation toward a group of old white men because they have the power, they have had the power. And so many students on campus today consider shouting down a speaker with whom they disapprove or dislike as acceptable. And so uh, Jordan Peterson is one of these people, and he has shown a lot of bravery in Canada. Um, We've known about him for some time, but uh, he has, whatever you might think about his views, he has tried to stand up for free speech and freedom of thought, but in the midst of people not wanting to have discourse. And so he has stood his ground even when other people were falling out, and uh, he suffered a lot of threats and a lot of horns and a lot of uh, pushing, and, but it's created also a violence. But what has happened is that this, this violent action is not just controlling of speech, but an action of violence can be considered not immoral if it's coming from an oppressed class. 
And so you had an instance of the, the philosophy professor who was um, protesting with Antifa, and he struck a Trump supporter with a bike lock and felt justified. And so you see a moral asymmetry at work. What is moral for the oppressed class um, or what is, um, is, it may not be moral for the oppressor class. So I want to talk about, I believe, the shortcomings of critical theory before I turn to the response of biblical Christianity. I believe that it fails to free everyone from oppressive structures and it fails to create a unified society. So in the first, instead of righting wrongs and removing oppression, it is simply an attempt to reverse the roles. It's a new hierarchy. It's a new oppressor class. Jordan Peterson speculates that the structure is based on raw power, that the interpretation that all is based on raw power, and he wonders why that is. And he speculates that perhaps it's because it allows the use of power to be justified. And so the oppressed may now oppress. That's their justification. Or you have Leela quote <clears throat> uh, where he talks about uh, how these tensions remain, how, how, how the whole desire to remove the oppression has not removed oppression, it's just changed roles and it's created tension. So I have a couple quotes. A strange and depressing development for professors who went to college back in the 60s rebelled against the knuckle wrappers and mussed the school marm's hair. Left identitarians who think of themselves as radical creatures, contesting this and transgressing that, have become like buttoned-up Protestant school marms when it comes to the English language, parsing every conversation for immodest locutions and wrapping the knuckles of those who inadvertently use them. Now, Leela is a provocative speaker, uh, I don't always like his tone, uh, but I, I, wanted to, I wanted to put it this up here anyway just to talk about the reversals of, of power and that those who wanted to rebel against the system have now become the new school marms. He also has a comment on Black Lives Matter. He says, Black Lives Matter is a textbook example of how not to build solidarity. As soon as you cast an issue exclusively in terms of identity, you invite your adversary to do the same. Those who play one race card should be prepared to be trumped by another, as we saw subtly and not so subtly in the 2016 presidential election. And it just gives that adversary an additional excuse to be indifferent to you. So it just maintains the power plays. It maintains the conflict. But I also believe that it fails to unify society. This was, uh, this isn't my picture, but I saw a picture like this on my way down. This is a, a Canadian bank, uh, HSBC, and it's uh, their new cultural diversity campaign. Uh, banks are into cultural diversity campaigns. Um, but it says, difference, the only thing we all have in common. Now, that's, a, that's something you might just walk by and like to hear, but just pause on that a moment. Difference. That's the only thing we have in common. Of course, they fail to recognize that we're all birds. <laughs> bat 
Cats are birds, I think. <laughs> I should have taken a different picture. But this idea is that difference is what's being emphasized and not looking at what it unifies us. That it cuts, and that's what Leela's big argument is, is that it cuts against our citizenship. It cuts against us as a people together. Uh, it cuts against our desire for a common good. And so, so Leela continues to say, Today the theoretically adept are likely to be taught, to the consternation of older feminists, that one cannot generalize about women since their experiences are radically different depending on their race, sexual preference, class, physical abilities, life experiences, and so on. And so you have a picture here of people protesting. You have women protesting, and you have this African-American lady holding a sign that says, don't forget, white women voted for Trump. Or you have feminism without intersectionality is just white supremacy. So intersectionality doesn't just fragment society from group. Uh, it doesn't just divide groups from one another, but it also even fragments individuals. Half oppressor, half oppressed. Richard Bauckham in God and the Crisis of Freedom says this, and this will turn us toward, um, uh, this is his analysis of the pursuit of freedom without God. And then we'll turn to the the view of biblical Christianity. The oppressed who long for freedom are not truly liberated from the system that oppresses them, so long as the freedom they desire is only the freedom their oppressors have, freedom for themselves, no matter what this entails for others. In such circumstances, the struggle for liberation is simply a mirror image of the system it opposes. It becomes ruthless in its self-interest, creates as many victims as it liberates, and produces a new kind of tyranny in place of the old. Outward liberation worthy of the name requires people who have been free to live for others and for all others, even for their oppressors. Now, that's a difficult, that is a difficult call, and it's a radical one, but I think it's one that biblical Christianity points us toward. So how does critical theory and these ideas um, relate to, um, to this all? Well, it doesn't relate well. That's the answer. <clears throat> It corrodes faith, particularly it sees the Bible even as a part of the hegemonic power. There's a, a woman, she's a, 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 a gay Jewish woman that she came to Labrie. Uh, it's a wonderful story. I'll just tell you very quickly that uh, her partner of 16 years got a brain tumor. Uh, within six weeks, she died. But during that time, her partner saw Jesus. And uh, this Jewish woman felt very confused by that all. Uh, and then after her partner died, she really was wrestling with Jesus. And then she came to church and met Jesus. Isn't Jesus wonderfully kind? Well, she came and uh, she was talking about how she struggled with the Bible. Because uh, young Christians, she grew up in New York and young Christians in her high school would throw rocks at her, calling her Christ killer. 
she had bad experiences with men, which led her into lesbianism. And so we were sitting there, and she said that she really, and I asked her, I was wanting to sit down, why she struggled with the Bible. And I thought it was going to be around homosexuality. But actually, her struggle was just all of it. She goes, it's easy for you because you're white and male. It's not It's hard for someone like me. And I said, I find it just as difficult as anyone. I feel myself constantly convicted. And she was surprised by that. Um, so I want us to think about how biblical Christianity, the, the fuller witness, calls us all into uh, the path of forgiveness and the path of God's justice. <clears throat> I'm going to skip that slide. So I have three points. The first one, and these are the last three aspects right before I turn to the end. One, it's not a construction of human power. Reality is not a construction of human power, but it's God's creation. Reality is not reduced to any earthly power. That's very important. If, um, if power, if human power is central to reality... It's always going to be a contest of wills. It's interesting that ancient and modern cosmologies always begin their creations in conflict. But in the Hebrew Bible, it says, in the beginning, God. There is no conflict. God brings all things to order through his power, even through his voice, his word. And so this provides us as humanity that, that we cannot control control the power. It's God's rule. It's God's power. It is beyond our grasp. But it also gives us a unified field of knowledge and morals. Instead of just the oppressor, oppressed experience or the objective facts of the dominant culture, we all must be held, even if we create unjust laws, we stand under a unified field of knowledge and morals where God will be judge over all and he holds all together. And as we stand under the creator, that means we all stand equal. There's moral symmetry. No one stands above it. The oppressor does not stand above God's laws or morals. And this unity is not totalitarian. God's God's creation and law and morals is not totalitarian. God's creation, there is a call to participate voluntarily what God has given and what God has called us into. And Adam and Eve were even free at that point to rebel against it. And we are all free to continue to rebel against it. Or we can raise our empty hands and no longer call God a liar. And so we all stand equally under God's rule, under God's morals. The second is that it's not human domination or superiority in the Bible, but human equality. We are equal in creation, in sin, and in redemption. First, we're equal in creation. That means we have inherent dignity given to us by God because every person, whether they love him or not, bears God's image. God calls humanity and each person as a part of his very good creation, even your enemy. Now, this is an idea that is told to us that is self-evident. It is not self-evident. But it's taken as something true, often with even within critical theory. 
but it's based on the biblical view of the person. And for the Christian, it's not just an idea, but is our posture toward the other person. And so as we think about this, even as we think about those who we may consider enemy, we see them as those as bearing dignity, as bearing the image of God. This is what breaks down the oppressor-oppressed class. Second, we are equal in sin. This claims that no one is righteous. Now, while we all have dignity, all have rebelled against God. And when we rebel against God, that is the source of oppression. It does not start or originate externally. It originates internally. And as we internally rebel against God, that's what creates unjust structures. Solzhenitsyn was horrified at his experiences uh, in the Russian gulag. And as he's reflecting on how one might be just, he thinks about, should we eliminate the groups that have oppressed me, that, uh, that have started these uh, um, gulags? And he said, no, I can't. Because if I do that, then I just fall into the same power dynamic that they started. Because good and evil cuts through every human heart. He had a real understanding that sin is not just out there, but it's in here. And that equalizes us. We all fall short. It also brings a moral symmetry as well. Thirdly, we're equal in our need and call to redemption in Jesus. All are called equally to humble themselves to receive forgiveness. That means no one comes with more merit than another. No one has some advantage or privilege to come to Jesus. All it is is uh, come and eat. I can't remember the verse right now. But come with no money and buy. Thank you, Isaiah. Thank you. While God has a special concern for the poor throughout the Bible and marginalized peoples, they are also called to repent. This is why we see a call in the early church for people to come to Jesus, whether they are female or male, poor or rich, Jew or Gentile, slave or master, oppressed or oppressor. In Christ, all are equal. And then again, this was not just an idea or some ideal, utopian vision, but it was a demonstrated reality. Paul wrote a letter to uh, the master Philemon, and uh, he had a runaway slave, Onesimus, and he runs away, but he has become quite dear to Paul in his struggle for the gospel, perhaps become become a child of God at that time. And he's sending him back to his master, Philemon. And he says that he wants him to receive him again, but in kindness, but more than kindness. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He's saying, He may be your property under law, but in Christ, treat him as an equal in the flesh and in the Lord. And so in doing this and doing that elsewhere in the early church, 
it radically restructures society. A repentance of hearts coming into Christ, renewing those relationships, radically restructured how society was to be seen. And then lastly on this, liberation from oppression, not by human power, but by the Spirit's power. As I was doing this lecture, it reminded me of a quote that Francis Schaeffer gave in True Spirituality. He says, the greatest threat to the world is not communism or liberalism. He names a few we could add. Critical theory is not the greatest threat to human society. The greatest threat is the church seeking the kingdom of God in the power of the flesh and not in the power of the spirit. So we may have good ideas, but we need to live into the reality of what God has called us to by following and leading, I mean, by following him, by following his lead, keeping a step with his spirit. The church was a true minority, yet seeking to be faithful in how they related to one another, the world was transformed. Very lastly, this is very brief. Is there a way forward? The way forward is sometimes looking backwards. That good old time religion. Okay. Evangelicals have had a bad rap, but uh, they have had many impacts on societal transformations that we enjoy uh, today. They've been accomplished by faithful evangelicals. Um, They sought social change through the structures, but they also called for repentance and for equality um, and dignity among one another. We see it with uh, John and Charles Wesley. They preached the gospel to the prisoners who were on the gallows at the same time seeking prison reform. William Wilberforce in the Clapham sect, uh, he's very well known for the abolition of slavery, but he actually had a much wider Uh, stance of looking for the reformation of morals. And a part of that was even um, uh, around child labor laws and around the treatment of animals. You had uh, several evangelical women uh, called 19th century evangelical feminism pursue the women's suffragist movement. It was evangelicals, uh, many evangelical women who were behind that movement for women to have their rights to vote. And then we have Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. He called not only to protest, but to protest with dignity and suffering, um, suffering un- unjust things peaceably and welcoming people, white, uh, white people as brothers and sisters. These were all people that, were, uh, that sought to be faithful to God in the full witness of Scripture. There is a Jewish woman, Georgette Bennett. Uh, she wrote this. She works for an interfaith group, um, or she started it. She's a founder of it. I can't remember the name of it right now. But this is what she, so after evangelical started getting a bad rap, she wrote this article as a way of trying to defend them, even though she herself is not an evangelical Christian. Confronted with an excess of poverty, alcoholism, illness, inequality, racial tensions, Problems faced by immigrants, crime, the evangelical Christian conscience responded with social activism. Many from that community were immersed in the abolition movement, public health measures, the settlement house movement, the establishment of adoption agencies, the temperance movement, improvement of schools, enforced education for the poor, women's suffrage, among others, and ultimately the civil rights movement. Many of these movements in the pursuit of social justice required the intervention of government, 
And this was, in fact, partly driven by the contribution of evangelical Christianity to progressive social causes. So I'm just going to end with James chapter 1, verse 27, where he speaks about true religion. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What a wonderful balance of seeking social justice but desiring moral purity before God. Okay. That's it. Thank you. Uh, it's time for questions, so just come and please uh, speak up at the mic, and I will try to do my best. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> that's it. That's all I have. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, honestly, I, I don't know. I mean, those situations, um, there's so many circumstances that are at play and trying to know what you can and what you can't do, what kind of agency you might have, uh, and what kind of agency might you might might you have in other in other venues uh, but it become and if your place is dominated by critical theory it it becomes very difficult to to have any freedom of thought i mean this is what peterson was fighting for is he he says that he's he believes that transactivism actually affects trans people negatively uh, because they're using the trans people as basically a platform for their own power but not for their own dignity. And, um, and so 
there is no sense of dialogue. I mean, but I, you know, Peterson is a unique person. I mean, he gets up there and he's he speaks very forcefully, and he's made a lot of enemies, but he's just stood his ground. Uh, and it was at a at a position where he could lose his job, uh, and he didn't know. And I think that if his popularity did not go high and he started selling books, that he probably would have lost his job. Um, I don't know if you know, he's in critical condition um, uh, in Russia. I'm getting trying to go off meds. But anyway, uh, so I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know what you can do, is, but just try to find uh, what kind of agency you might have in that situation where you can relieve as many barriers as possible um, and to to not try to get into um, playing the power place, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, Jim from White Bear, just wanted to hear. Um, yes, sir. Question, you, your, your delineation of the fragmentation of the oppressed is profound, and it's, it's a real tragedy. Um, but what about the fragmentation of the body of Christ in presenting our witness? What personally are you doing to... Feel that, present, um, move us together in your venue to so that we have a more unified witness ourselves. Jesus is Lord or he's not. And our presentation oftentimes is, well, he is, but only we are right. So I'm curious what you're doing to heal the fragmentation, put us back together. Yeah, thank you. First, I give lectures. <laughs> Uh, but uh, that's actually honest. But also, when I have uh, people come to Labrie, uh, you know, we have very contentious lunch discussions. And so that's where a person can come, ask a question, and then it goes around. In fact, we had, yeah. Uh, and so critical theory shows it, it rears its head in discussions. And, uh, and they're wanting me to give space to someone's experience. You know these types of discussions, even from young evangelicals. Uh, and so, and so, I see some people who come, and they're just the the number one description I give uh, Americans these days are exhaustion. They are exhausted, cultural exhaustion. And and what you see is that they almost don't want to even talk about politics. But you have people who want to, you know. I saw this one woman, and she was talking about how she liked Trump. And, uh, and she just said that she liked Trump, and the other woman treated it like a microaggression. Uh, and so it can be very tenuous, and this is between two Christians. Uh, so how do, we, how do we heal the divide? You know, in my own personal way is I try to, uh, in those discussions, in a one-on-one, uh, I want to affirm the longing for justice that these people have. And affirm the anger that they have at where the church has failed. Because there is a lot of uh, the prophets spoke very strongly against God's people. And so I don't want to play identity politics with the church either. You know? And so, uh, so what I try to do is I try to get everyone to disarm. And, and then try to approach scripture uh, uh, in new ways. I don't know how churches can do it. Um, I've seen churches fall apart because of this. I've seen churches lose mass amounts of people. I've seen pastors burn out and leave. Uh, 
Uh, I think that we do, as Christians, need to approach Scripture in a fuller way. Um, that's that's something. But uh, yes. seems like towards the end of the lecture, you do want to give some credence to what critical theory is getting at, or, you know, how to kind of try to reconcile these ideas. I'm curious, do you fundamentally, do you accept that, that this, or the uh, oppressor oppressed distinction in society, do you generally agree with critical theory's evaluation of that? And if, if so, um, is, and it seems like I guess my second question is, is do you see that the, the definition of oppressor oppressed roughly uh, equivalent to or continuous with the biblical definition of what constitutes oppression? Are they essentially the same? Are they getting at the same idea? Or do you see that there's a difference there as well? Yeah, thank you. That's an excellent question. Uh, about do I see the oppressor or the oppressed as um, as a category that do I disagree to some to some extent uh, that that is real um, as what critical theory suggests and do I see some kind of correspondence with the Bible is that right yeah you know uh, I was trying to say that I do believe I was trying to give examples of hegemonic power where I do see that people who have power can create laws to justify themselves and to justify their own power and to maintain their power. And so I do see, I do believe that people can be oppressive. And I do believe that people are oppressed. And that structures and societies can be structured around those things. Um, Where critical theory, I I start having a problem is because uh, there's no nuance to it. As complicated as it can be, it seems that sometimes there's no nuance. That if you just simply see a white man, it's automatically an oppressor. And I think that that's not seeing the person in their circumstances. You have no idea about that person's story. Um, and so, and it's acting as if uh, 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 a male to female uh, transgendered person can't be an oppressor because I've seen where they can be oppressive to others. And so, so yes, I do see it. I do think structures can advantage and privilege certain people over a history of time, I see it that in the U.S. Uh, around race, that's happened. Um, and still we're inching way, um, a way forward to, to start um, trying to make structures more equitable. Uh, it's difficult because we, we tend to just create legislation and policy, which is not always the, it's not the sure way of, of getting people to recognize one and one with dignity. And so uh, I do see a correspondence in Scripture Insofar as that, I believe that there, there is oppression. Uh, but the form of oppression happens not just between groups. It does happen, but there's also each individual is responsible for their own res- moral responsibility before God. And, uh, and that no one group is, uh, there's, I don't believe in a moral asymmetry is what I'm trying to get at. Uh, and so the Bible wants to level the playing field. Uh, and so in that way, I, I think that it's it's different. Um, so, yes. One of the things you mentioned was how arguments used to be presented as I believe A, here's my argument, but now it's as X, I find it bit offensive that you believe B. Yes. How do you even approach a discussion with someone using that approach? 
I try to avoid that. Uh, I try to avoid it, honestly. Uh, I, I told this story the other day, and uh, it was it was a pastor. It was actually a, this guy who was the leader of a denomination, a very conservative denomination. But this man came up to him. He ran up to him, and this man told me a story. He goes, I'm gay. And uh, the man, and he was looking for a fight, and the man said, that's very interesting. I would like to know more about you. Um, because he felt like that wasn't his whole identity. And so trying not to play into the whole uh, identity politics, even at that level, I think is important. Uh, how might we do that uh, when someone starts positioning themselves in this way of saying as an X? Uh, I, I do not accept B. Uh, I don't know if much discourse can, uh, can go in that moment. I, I tried to play the long game. A few more questions? Yes. So I think the link has been pretty well established in the United States. Critical theory and postmodernism in general came into the public square through the universities, um, and in particular through the educational teachers' colleges, um, especially. And I, I don't know about Canada, but I know in the U.S. that's been pretty well established. I'm currently enrolled in a master's of education program at a state university in Minnesota, and I knew this was going to come up. It's inevitable. I didn't anticipate the degree to which everything we do, the whole as X uh, in a leadership class, we were supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. I haven't felt like I've had to compromise my faith, but my question is, at what point, at what point are institutions so kind of corrupt or broken with these ideologies that, as a Christian, you, it's very difficult or maybe even impossible. I'm not saying that's the case, but if that becomes the case, where kind of is the line between I can no longer be a part of this institution, and if so, is there a role for Christians to form new institutions? I, mean, I heard recently that it's the first time in like over 100 years that universities are being founded in the United States as an alternative to kind of the, the current situation. So I don't know if that makes sense, but like, at what point is it worth it to, to roll your sleeves up and get to work in these organizations and institutions, and at what point is it more wise to form an alternative and kind of in a libri kind of sense and kind of draw people into that. Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, there are times to uh, to leave an institution if it is entirely uh, uh, corrupt to a point of. Uh, of compromise, it seems like that's not a place where you're at. And if there's a way to remain, uh, then I would encourage that. But but there is a time to say no. There's there's time to leave. Uh, you know, you don't you don't want to have to make yourself an unnecessary martyr. Uh, I do. I I would fully encourage Christians to take up leadership and try to imagine new institutions. I think that America needs new institutions with or without critical theory. I think we need new ways, and uh, I see that in education. Uh, homeschooling is not illegal in Canada. I'm very thankful for that. Uh, but I see a lot of people, even people outside the church, doing homeschooling in Canada because the public institutions has become social reengineering, where critical theory is in, um, entering kindergarten. And so, um, and so this idea of, okay, well, what, what can parents do? And uh, the, 
current liberal government of Canada is trying to figure out how to get to the homeschooled kids uh, because they feel that um, they're, they're basically being religiously manipulated or not even religious. They're just being manipulated to not think like true citizens, and true citizens are all to think the same thing. Uh, and so I see people starting new institutions, new ways of education. I would encourage that. Maybe, uh, you know, I think Labrie is a wonderful thing, and and I think ever you know it's wonderful that it created in the '60s, and I just I just love it now, because it is a place where uh, God has really protected us and provided for us, but in such a way to have these kind of difficult discussions, where we can discuss critical theory without it breaking down. Um, but, uh, but Libri itself is a form of institution that, that God led Edith and Francis to start. But, um, but I think that, yeah, if God can start new institutions, I would encourage that. Yeah. Isaac? Hey, my name is Isaac from Minneapolis. Um, so you referenced the New Jim Crow, the book about how our history is still with us today. Yeah. Um, of the now called Russian uh, I'm wondering how proactive, particularly the church, um, can or should be in uh, reunification. I have a dear friend who does closely associate with the liberation theology movement, um, so he's out uh, picketing oil pipelines, and, and there's a lot that I really relate to there, um, but I also attend a church that's almost 100% white upper class uh, and so I'm wondering how to proactively engage um, in that reality engage in what reality Reun- I mean I believe there's only one reality but I'm just wondering your context uh, unification with brothers and sisters um, reconciling the uh, the one who protests and the rich white church and uh, the Oppressed, quote unquote. Like, um, in my mind, I just think of uh, cultural and racial diversity as an example. But yes, also with my friend who's very active. Yeah, you know, when we see all these uh, injustices on the TV and on our media feeds, it, we can become overwhelmed and almost become utopian or our zeal. Like, we got to make massive changes now. Um, I think that there needs to be changes. There needs to be, uh, at times, protest. There needs to be time at, uh, at, at being patient and these kind of things. Uh, yeah, I, I believe that we need to, um, to just try to be who you are in your location. I mean, it might mean, I mean, you are that reconciliation point in some ways. But how might you bring a bit more of that to your church and bring that what to your friend? I mean, because if you start thinking, okay, how can I be for the oppressed and for my, my uh, evangelical liberation theologian friend and my rich wife's church, and it just gets so divided, just rest in Christ and just try to make small movements and just let, let God, you know, you, want to, you don't want to just rest and say, okay, everything's okay. But how can I be proactive in maybe acts of hospitality? Acts of conversation, acts of wanting to maybe even start something, depending on who you are. Um, so that would be my recommendation. Small acts of faithfulness at trying to bring that and allowing the spirit to be at work. 
Wayne uh, from Champaign, Illinois. We could go back in the 1970s. The constant drumbeat was, you must be born again. The four spiritual laws of crusade was everywhere. And it made sense to me. And so I prayed for them, accepting my But I didn't know where to go after that. Seems like it was just a narrow Christian subculture at that point. And then I accidentally found how should we then live. Uh, arrived at film two, and I sat there. At the time, I was living a pretty wild life, uh, a lot of drugs. But that film series showed me what Schaefer called a non truncated gospel. Hmm. It was the Lordship of Christ over the whole of life. Hmm. In an interview, he said, I see the importance of accepting Christ as Savior, but for most people, it stops there. My issue today is that I think we've gone on all over evangelicalism to try and live the Lordship of Christ over the whole life. But my sense is that we've stopped valuing or making it a mission to see people accept Christ as Savior. Hmm. That people are, are not sensing, we're almost even afraid of the expression, you must be born again. Where comes Thank you. It's excellent. And I do see that there is uh, many uh, young Christians coming to Labrie and just horrified even at the idea of evangelism. Um, you know, uh, what's, you know, it, it's almost an act of oppression or aggression to evangelize. Uh, and so they're horrified by it. Um, though interestingly, we had a couple in their 60s, uh, they, you know, the students started talking about tracks and flyers and evangelism and all this kind of stuff, and they were just, you know, just being very negative about it. And this Quebecois couple were very confused. And they said, I don't understand what you're talking about. We stand on the street and people are very interested. And because Quebec is so post-Christian that they don't even know what Christianity is. Uh, and so evangelism in Quebec is quite uh, is quite a, an easier thing to do than here. But, but yeah, I mean, you can truncate the gospel on both sides. You can truncate it by saying salvation in Jesus, now here's your ticket, and go off. Um, or you can truncate it by saying it's do, 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 justice, 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 and never a sense that hearts need to be converted. But, uh, but it's really through the conversion of hearts that structural changes come. Uh, you know, when Jesus, uh, when Zacchaeus was touched by Jesus and his heart was moved and converted by Jesus, he says, I want to give all my money and I want to right all the wrongs. And so this personal repentance led to structural change. Uh, and so we need to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, belief in Jesus, so that structural change can happen. But if we try to proclaim uh, you know, you know, when Jesus in John 6, uh, they want him because he can produce bread. And it says they, 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 were, they tried to force him to become king. And he didn't want to be that type of king. And, uh, and so we need to allow Jesus to be the type of king that he is. And, and in doing so, our hearts will be renewed to create these societal strain, um, changes. But, yeah, I think that the proclamation of the gospel is forefront for social justice to actually occur.
Chuck. This is Matt from Philadelphia. Uh, first, uh, I appreciated the slide you had in the middle of your presentation just about the paradoxical effect of wanting justice mm. so much that then God falls off. Mm. Uh, that's, that just sort of blew my mind because then you have, that's just how sin works. And so that's a tie-in with the second question really, which is uh, the devil, right? The, the oppressor, the original oppressor mm. that we all believe in, that we read about in the Bible. Mm. I guess I'm wondering, is, is that a potential connection point or did you come across anything in your research for this or in your conversations where it's like, hey, I believe that oppression is a thing. In fact, biblically, Oppression is absolutely a thing. Like Pharaoh wasn't just Pharaoh. <laughs> like there's there's a history, a lineage of an oppressor that wants the other things than goodness for humanity. Um, you know, right? actually, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, if you think of the devil with a pitchfork, yeah. I mean, people don't believe in that. Throw that out. Um, I don't believe in that. But but I don't have a hard time convincing people of Satan at all. People believe in evil. They may not say Satan, but they believe in evil and they believe it's real. And uh, I, I, I go to lots of atheist groups and there's no hesitation in believing in evil uh, because they've experienced it. Uh, and so, yeah, Satan is very important um, as a part of understanding that there is an unseen battle at work here. It's not that we're battling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so, uh, yeah, to, to yeah to recognize that Satan is a part of this, and that's that's a part of the battle. But I, I think that getting people to believe it is quite easy. Yeah, thank you. Woke. Yes. <laughs> no. I was just trying to slip it in to be culturally relevant. No, as I understand it, this is, and I actually looked up the definition this morning, so just to double check. Uh, so I, I typed in critical consciousness. And uh, critical consciousness is a sense of knowing where you, where you fit within the polarity of the oppressor oppressed. Where do you fit into this category? And becoming aware that there is a system and that you play a part in it. Uh, woke plays a part of that. It, it has some similar meanings, uh, but it's particularly in the area of race in America, uh, uh, between these racial tensions. But it, it has some idea that it's, it's coming to see that, oh, there actually is a structure, an oppressive structure at work. And it's not just, uh, um, like I said, it's almost that conversion moment for people. So being woke is, as I understand it, and as I was told it was on Google, that... <laughs> that it's a sense of being aware of racial injustice in the structures. Last question. Thank you for the summary on the timeline of all the ways that Christians have been present during the meeting in social reform, in policy reform, and movements for social justice, in issues such as women's rights and racial injustice. Could you point to examples of Christians who had particularly helpful things to say or do about the um, past or present situations like the wave of mass migration that the world is experiencing right now? Have Christians had things to say about mass migration? Yeah. 
Jock, do you know? I don't. Uh, I actually don't know. Um, I do. Thank you. <laughs> I know he knows everything. Um, uh, Christian uh, mission groups, churches at the forefront in Europe are receiving refugees uh, right across at every level. Uh, in terms of the kind of activism and the kind of movements we talk about, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, I don't know that there are those kinds of you know, uh, Christian-led uh, movements around the issue of immigration. Uh, but I think that's probably only a matter of time uh, in this country. Uh, but certainly in Europe, where it's a very you know, critical issue, uh, immigration and receiving and with hospitality refugees, uh, the church is, is very much at work. Thank we'll you. have to leave it. Let's thank Clark. Yeah.